Great. Well, now we're transitioning now to our study of Second Timothy. Um, as a church, we've always been committed to an expositional study of the Word of God. It is our commitment to always um, devote ourselves to a, a book of the Bible and study through it verse by verse. And it's been the hallmark of our church, a hallmark of our ministry here at Cornerstone. So when we began, we began, I think we planted our church around Matthew 24, 25. And then we went into a verse-by-verse study of 1 Timothy. And then we went through a four- or five-year study of the Gospel of John, which we finished about six months ago. For the past six months, we've been wrestling with what book to study next, and we've been all over the place. I first thought about the book of Daniel, and I actually bought some commentaries on Daniel, did some background research and study because I wanted to study the book of Daniel together as a church. Various things have happened, and then we moved on to 1 Corinthians. We thought 1 Corinthians might be a good book to study together. And then I thought about buying commentaries, but by God's grace, uh, held myself back because we changed again, or I changed again, and thought 1 Peter. I've been told the, uh, the Bob and Marcus and Jason, I'm going to study 1 Peter. They're all excited. Great, we're praying for you. And then I changed again to 2 Timothy. And since we're starting 2 Timothy this morning, I can't change anymore. All right, here we're going. We're walking through these doors, and we're committed on 2 Timothy for at least uh, probably a year or two, if not longer. So, of course, um, you know, Bob and others have asked me, why 2 Timothy? Right, people that talk to Pastor James, why 2 Timothy? Well, there are so many reasons for us studying this letter, but... Really, the ones I want to mention to you are the key ones are selfish ones. We are studying Second Timothy first and foremost for myself, uh, for my own reasons, for selfish reasons. Um, first reason, I guess, would be as a pastor, as a young pastor, I need to understand the pastoral epistles. I need to understand, therefore, First Timothy, Titus, and Second Timothy, because there is just there is a continuing sense of uh, inadequacy, um, lack of insight, lack of clarity on what it means to be a pastor, and how I'm 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 to conduct myself in the pastoral ministry. Um, we're going to Mexico missions uh, about a month ago for an overnight scouting trip. So it was kind of neat for our 10-year anniversary. My wife and I went away to Hawaii to celebrate. I came back, and next morning we went to uh, Mexico. So I woke up next morning in some small city in Mexico with roosters crowing and dogs barking. So, you know, huge change from waking up in Kanapali and waking up in Mexico. Well, on the drive back, I think Dave and Savannah were asking me, it was Dave, Savannah, and Huey, they were asking me, Pastor James, what's the most difficult thing about being a pastor? What's the most difficult and challenging thing? I said, well, first of all, don't call me pastor. Just call me James. I thought about it. What is the most difficult thing? And I would say it's this gnawing sense of inadequacy. It never leaves you. And it just continues to grow. And that's very difficult. Think about it. If you had, if your workplace, your occupation, your career, 
you just felt inadequate. Every day, every week, you just felt you're not fit for the task. Um, you are a subpar teacher, subpar accountant, or lawyer, what that would do to you. Well, that's how, that's the sense I get. Week in and week out, this is a great inadequacy to, uh, to be a pastor, to preach the Word, to teach God's Word. I mean, come on. Who am I to stand before God's people and say, well, I'm going to explain to you God's will and God's revelation. I'm going to model to you God's truth. And I'm going to care for your soul. The elders and pastors, we're going to shepherd, a flock shepherd, we're going to shepherd your soul. Who are we uh, to have confidence in that incredible lofty task? I was talking to Adam this week, and he was saying, I asked him, what are his fears in getting married? We'll get married in two weeks. And he was saying, I'm scared about a lot of things, but one of the things is the, the possibility of us having a child. I can't even keep my room clean. How am I going to care for my wife and care for a child? Teach this child? Model truth to this child? And shepherd this child? Pastor James, I almost don't want to get married. He didn't say that, but... <laughs> that's, you know, I read his mind. I almost want to run away. I understand that. That's how I feel as a pastor. So I need um, Second Timothy. Because here is the Apostle Paul, uh, I mean just an eminent theologian, missionary, man of God, but really just a model pastor in every way. And so I, I can't reinvent this wheel. I can't create this wheel. I need to follow a pattern. And uh, God chose this man for us to follow. For all the elders, for all the shepherds here, he is the one we look to. I mean, Christ is the chief shepherd, but he's the under-shepherd, a living model for us to pattern ourselves after. In the fog of war, as we, are te- we tend to lose our way, lose our focus, and lose clarity, uh, Paul will set us, reset us and help us to uh, follow in his steps as he follows Christ. So, that's the first reason. Second reason... We chose Second Timothy, and I chose Second Timothy is uh, my last conversation, conversation with my dad. I am so just so thankful. It's been six months since my dad passed away, and I'm so thankful for that last his deathbed conversation that I had with him um, before he left us. Uh, it was maybe two days, maybe a day before he was um, um, put a tube in his mouth for his breathing. He couldn't talk anymore. So we were able to talk about life and family and Stephen Christ, read the scriptures to him, and he read portions of Psalms and you know, the Gospels and the Epistles and prayed together for a length of time. And he was telling me, James, life is so short. You know, life is short. You've got to give yourself, give yourself for Christ and give yourself for your family. And that was so good for me as a young man such a temptation to loaf around, temptation to waste time, waste my energy on fruitless pursuits. It was so sobering for me to sit there with my dad and tell me life is short. Redeem the time. You need to uh, live your life backwards. James, you'll end up one day in a 
hospital room like this, and in this kind of situation, with weeks, days, maybe hours left to live. And so you want to live your life backwards. In light of that end, you want to live appropriately. And that's what Second Timothy is for us, for all Christians. This is Apostle Paul's last letter. His death is imminent. He, he is uh, in bondage under a cruel and oppressive uh, ruler, Nero, who is set on crushing Christianity. Uh, Bible students have called Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians as the prison epistles. That's wrongly labeled because when Paul wrote those letters, he wasn't in prison. He was under house arrest. Uh, he was paying for his own room. He could have guests come and visit him and freely study and share the gospel. So we should look at those epistles as house arrest epistles, not as prison epistles. Second Timothy is the only true prison epistle. Because when Paul is writing this letter, he is in a dungeon. His hands are chained like a criminal. He is treated like a criminal. And um, execution is, is imminent, is uh, a realistic possibility. And church history tells us, yes, he was indeed executed, martyred for the faith, around 67 AD, shortly after the writing of this letter. So for us and for me, I need to uh, live my life backwards, Eternally, I'm gonna st- we're going to stand before Christ and give an account of all that we have done on earth, good and the bad. But also, on this earth, live my life back- backwards, live my ministry backwards, and I don't want to have those major constitutional regrets in life and ministry. I want to be, by God's grace, and I'm sure everyone here as well, we want to be able to say, at that last day, we want to re- echo Paul's words. You know, I fought a good fight. I ran a good race. I have finished the race, and I'm ready to meet the Lord. I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering and to be with Christ my Savior. I want to be able to be able to say that, say those words. I know every one of you, as we look back on our lives and our families and our ministries, we want to be able to say, I fought well, fought hard. I didn't run aimlessly. I didn't box the air. I ran the course God had set up set up for me, and I finished it by God's grace. I'm ready to meet my Maker. How how can we prepare ourselves for that course? It's by seeing how where Paul ended up, and living our lives backwards in light of that. Thirdly, um, I chose Second Timothy because I needed for my own endurance. I needed for my own heart, my own soul. If you've been with us this past year, you know, I don't want to get into all the details, but I mean, you just know it's been a very difficult year, um, ministry-wise, but just my family and, uh, you know, my family and my parents and ministry, it's been a challenging year, uh, maybe one of the most difficult years that I've ever faced, and it's getting increasingly more difficult. Life gets more complex, doesn't get simpler. Ministry gets more difficult. The stakes are raised year in and year out as each year passes. And it gets more grueling. MacArthur said this years ago, and I'll never forget it. He said, first two or three years of ministry is honeymoon period. And it's true. Two or three years, every sermon is fresh. Every joke is funny. Right? Every thought is profound. 
Everybody's just cling on every, every sentence that the pastor speaks. Can't wait to just jot it down because it's precious jewels. After about the third year, it becomes work. becomes a task. It becomes challenging. Um, the honeymoon period is over. And then he said, after seven or ten years, it becomes war. You're fighting for your life. Right? It's sink or swim. If you stop swimming, there's no, you know, there's no lifeboat. There's no life raft. You're not, there's no um, lifeboat to come and carry and save you. You're on your own. You sink, you sink. Well, honeymoon was definitely over. And it's not, it's work. It continues to be work. But growing sense that it's, be, it's become war. And uh, honestly, I'll tell you, it's been times of discouragement, times of uh, just disappointment, where my heart's been discouraged, disheartened, and sense that this is a long and arduous race. And uh, I need Second Timothy to encourage my heart. And to promote in my heart a sense of perseverance and endurance by seeing Paul's life. Because he suffered way more than I have and I ever will. The race that he ran was much more difficult. The battles that he faced was much more challenging than I'll ever face. And yet Paul experienced the same grace that, that's given to me. Same faith that God has given to me and to all of us sustained him to the end and he finished what if Paul failed what if Paul shipwrecked his faith caught in an immoral relationship or found to be siphoning off money for himself or he found he strayed away to false doctrine and he went back to Phariseeism or other workspace system oh it would just devastate the Christian testimony and just discourage all of us. But by God's grace, Paul, bearing that burden of all the churches, and really early Christianity, um, being dependent upon him, he, by grace of God, by God's strengthening, endured and finished the race. I need that example in my life. At the midpoint of my life in ministry, it's the early point of my life in ministry, I need that example, I need that challenge. So I'm studying Second Timothy for myself. I think it will help me and help all of us to put things in perspective. Right? We might think, wow, my life is so hard. My ministry is so challenging. Oh, these, these trials in my life are so difficult. Well, for the next year or two, let's study this letter written by a man who's in prison, who's been beaten with rods five times, 39 lashes minus 40 lashes minus one. Right? Shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, left for dead, facing imminent execution. Let's read his words, hear his sufferings, and uh, feel his heart. It's full of joy, full of thanksgiving, full of giving praise to God. I think this, starting this letter will, for all of us, give us perspective uh, that God... That God's grace is sufficient and our, our struggles pale in comparison to what this great apostle has gone through and his message is important and relevant to us. Well, before we dive into our study of the text, 
we're going to go on a possibly three-week study on the Apostle Paul, uh, a biographical sketch, if you will, of this uh, great man of God. Um, we're going to zoom out of um, Second Timothy, and we're going to zoom in on Apostle Paul. Maybe get a street-level view. See that new Google uh, you know, option where, like in San Francisco, you can go and like literally a street-level panoramic view of the street. Uh, through Google.com. Man, like amazing. That's what we want to do with Apostle Paul. We don't want to see him from afar. We're going to look at um, every possible, not every possible, but many possible perspectives on this man. God indeed called a unique man to be his spokesman for his glorious good news. Paul was God's keynote speaker, as it were, for heralding the gospel. He was a singularly gifted man. He was given the divine insight, Ephesians 3, 4, into the mystery of Christ and the mystery which had been hidden from past ages and generations, but it now had been manifested to his saints, Colossians 1, 26. This mystery of the church had been kept hidden. It was revealed to the apostles and to Apostle Paul. That remarkable Jew with Greek education and Roman citizenship had incredible leadership ability, high motivation, articulate expression, was specially and directly called and converted by God and was given to the church as God's gift. He was a missionary, a theologian, evangelist. He was a pastor, organizer, leader, thinker. He was a fighter for the truth. He was a lover of souls. Never has a more godly man lived except our Lord Himself. Never has a more godly man lived except our Lord Himself. In his masterful volume, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, one of the books that I read in preparation for this series, F.F. F. Bruce wrote that, quote, No single event, apart from the Christ event itself, has proved so determinate for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. So the greatest event in redemptive history was the cross. Second is the conversion of this apostle and how God used him for the Christian church. Roland Allen said, in a little more than 10 years, the apostle Paul established the church in four provinces of the empire. Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Before AD 40, There were no churches in those provinces. In a mere ten years, Paul could speak as if his work was done. And he could plan extensive tours into the far west without anxiety because the churches that he established were so strong. F.F. Bruce again said, Paul was not the only preacher of Christianity in the Gentile world at that day. There were some who preached 
in sympathy with him and others who did so in rivalry to him. But he outstripped all others. As a pioneer missionary, as a planner of churches, nothing can detract from his achievement as the Gentiles' apostle par excellence. So we want to pause here and devote our time, devote our intention to studying this man, the late great Apostle Paul. This is our way of honoring him, respecting him, thanking God for him. Romans 13, 7, Paul said, um, pay to all what is owed to them. If you owe them taxes, pay your taxes. Owe them revenue, give them revenue. If respect is owed, pay them respect. If honor is owed, pay them honor. We owe Apostle Paul respect and honor. He's an honorable man, worthy of our respect. So we want to honor him by pausing and giving thanks for his life and his ministry. Proverbs 10.7 said, Solomon said, the memories of the righteous are a blessing and the memories of the Apostle Paul are indeed a blessing and will be a blessing to all of us. Uh, one more quote by John MacArthur. Paul crisscrossed much of the Roman Empire as God's ambassador of the good news of Christ. He performed many healing miracles, yet was not relieved of his own thorn in the flesh. He raised Eutychus from the dead, but, but he was at least once left for dead himself. He preached freedom in Christ, but was imprisoned by men during many years of his ministry. He has set for us a good and high example as a godly man. The right standard, the biblical standard, on the kind of man, kind of Christian, all of us should aspire to be. Well, I want to highlight to you four distinguishing marks of Paul's character, his life, ministry, and heart. Four things that stand out to me in Paul four characteristics that I exhort you to pursue after in your own life. First of all, he was a man who was absolutely saturated with the Word of God. A man whose mind was bathed in the Scriptures. It is sad but true that so many Christians had the same kind of commitment to Jesse's former spiritual discipline of not reading the Bible. They're committed to just not opening its pages, not reading it, not meditating on it. And yet, when you once just read the Scriptures, and understand it, literal understanding of the Scriptures, it's so powerful, so beautiful, so heart-enlarging, heart-enriching. Oh, Apostle Paul, he was a man of one book. And that was the Bible. And that was the Scriptures. His great intellect was continually immersed with the Scriptures. 
His, his mind was thoroughly bathed and immersed with the truths of God's Word. He saw everything in life and light of God's revealed truth. Most of his books, great portion of his 13 epistles, were written down by a secretary. He is just preaching. He's dictating these words. And someone is just feverishly writing them down. So these are not books that he's researching and writing word for word or sentence by sentence. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's preaching extemporaneously what is in his heart. And so you, see, you just are, are impressed by the weight of his arguments and the biblical faithfulness of his arguments. In the book of Romans, for example, Paul speaks with such competence about the Old Testament. He understood the relationship between grace and law, between flesh and spirit. In teaching about these glorious and complex truths, he, he draws effortlessly from the writings of Moses, Hosea, Isaiah, and David, demonstrating exceptional familiarity with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It's like seeing a master at work. Here is a man, excellent in his craft, pulling out truths from Old Testament scriptures and synthesizing them and explaining it and how it applies to New Covenant believers. He effortlessly and frequently quotes from Jeremiah, Malachi, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, his knowledge and his ability to teach God's Word, to explain, to explicate God's Word was it's impeccable. Right. I mean, I'm encouraged, though, that he put someone to sleep. Right? Good as he was, you know, he, he preached into the night. Eutychus couldn't, just couldn't do it. So he was sitting on a ledge, and he fell over, and he died. No one has died under my preaching yet. But that encourages me um, that even the Apostle Paul with his great eloquence put a man to sleep. He was a man of one book. Again, that book was the Bible. He was a master of it and the Bible in his hands became for it the chosen weapon of God to save the lost and sanctify the saints. And, and we have his writings with us and by studying his writings we can get into his mind and think his thoughts after him as he was thinking God's thoughts after God. That stands out about, about the Apostle Paul. Second thing that stands out is that he was a man who had a determined and resolute sense of mission. Again and again he said, I'm called by God, by the will of God. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It has been my ambition to proclaim Christ where it had not been preached. He had this sense of God's call upon his life. And he would not be sidetracked or distracted. He was unbelievably focused. He knew his call. He knew his mission. And he went about it with unflinching devotion. I mean, just so many men, myself included, so easily distracted. So easily sidetracked. Just kind of float through life. And wait for life to happen. They're not 
pursuing Christ. They're not running to the line. You know, they're not asking for the ball. They're not, they don't want to count for life. They just want to be spectators. They want to just observe. They want to just kind of contribute. You know, here's my you know, contribution to God's work. Here's my little you know, help in what God wants to do. That was not Paul. He was a man of vision, and he was passionate about it. He was passionate about it. He daily rolled up his sleeves, and he set about to do the hard work of ministry, and his heart was in it. What I'm finding, and this is just my observation, is this is sorely lacking in men, and somewhat maybe too prominent in women. So just generally, I see just women, godly, they're passionate, they're diligent. They just spring out of bed, and they can't wait to tackle life and make their lives count for Christ. The sense of just devoting themselves and sacrificing themselves for the call of Christ. And the guys are waking up 9, 10 o'clock. You know, they watch ESPN, they brush their teeth, you know. They have cereal, then they maybe wash their face, you know, if they're going out. And it's kind of leisurely go through the day and they come to a meeting kind of late, you know, and they sit in the back and maybe say a few words and then just kind of go eat and go play. I mean, I'm just generalizing here. When I'm not saying it should be the opposite, but I'm saying as much as women are passionate for Christ, men ought to be all the more so laying their hearts on the line, wearing their hearts in their sleeves, and giving it all for Christ. I mean, that's the Apostle Paul. I mean, he would not be dissuaded from what God had called him to do. If he was beaten on a particular day, put in stocks and in prison, he would sing the gospel. Right? If he was... Um, stoned and left for dead because of his preaching, he would get up by the power of God, brush off the dust off of his clothes, and march on to the next city to proclaim proclaim God's word again. If there was a sense where he was running away from his Jewish antagonizers, the persecutors that he was facing in every city, he was tired of running. So though he knew he'd be prisoned, and threat was, death was a distinct possibility. He wanted to go into the heart of Judaism, Jerusalem, the temple courts to pr- proclaim the gospel. Remember Ephesians 20, the elders persuaded him, don't go, Paul. Don't you know you're signing away your death sentence if you go back to Jerusalem? They're looking for you all over the place. If they get their hands on you, they're going to kill you. And Paul said, what do you mean? I'm ready to die for Christ. I'm tired of this running from these uh, false religious leaders. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to proclaim the gospel there. Paul had thick skin. Spiritual warrior. He was this hardened often. He was discouraged. He could, especially letters like St. Corinthians and 2 Timothy, you know that as he was writing, he, was, he had tears in his eyes. His heart was being just wrenched from the torment of pain of, of caring for people. 
But though discouraged, he never quit. Never caused him to walk away. I'm so humbled by this. At times I get paralyzed by really small discouragements. I mean, just trivial things. Petty things cause me to struggle in my faith. But that's why we're studying Second Timothy, not the Apostle Paul. Third thing that stands out is um, he, he loved the church. He had a deep love for the local church. Right, where did I learn to love the local church? Right, and Bob and I, pastors here, shepherds, I would say I first learned it from um, Pastor MacArthur. Until him, I never saw a man who loved the local church. Others like him, other pastors, like Cohen Smith and so on. All of us, where do we learn to love the church as we do now? From the Apostle Paul? From Apostle Paul himself? I'll tell you, Cornerstone is my life. You know, my wife and I, Bob and Sophie as well, I mean, we live and breathe Cornerstone. Right? In our 10 year anniversary, we vowed. Seren, we're on our vacation. Let's not talk about Cornerstone. Let's not talk about ministry. But we have to fight not to think about you guys. Right? Some of you is easier than others, but <laughs> have to fight not think about Cornerstone, not talk about Cornerstone, because, you know, our marriage relationship. But it just shows how Cornerstone, and not because you guys are, I'm special, you're special, because it's Christ church. It's so... Um, intertwined with our hearts and our thoughts and our lives. Can't, there's no clear division of pastors and elders of Cornerstone and the body of Cornerstone were inextricably tied together. And you are in our hearts, our thoughts, our prayers, even in our dreams, sometimes nightmares, <laughs> but mostly dreams. Where did I learn to love the local church in this way? from our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Apostle Paul and other apostles. Paul's love for his spiritual brothers and sisters in the church is evident in his letters. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. Paul was a tough guy, but he so loved the church, he was willing to put on an apron. Willing to, figuratively speaking, put on a dress. Verse 7, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, only a real man could say that. Why? Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, because we love you so much, our affections, our hearts were so with you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, we're not professional teachers, we're not just professionals doing work, we're not clocking in and clocking out, 
we were sharing with you not just the gospel, but our, also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. Go down to verse 19. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. 1 Thessalonians 3.6 Ever since Paul left Thessalonica, his weight, his burden, his concern, his anxiety was, how were they doing? How were the Thessalonian Christians doing in their faith? He had heard scattered reports about the condition of their faith, but he was unsure. So he lost sleep. He had difficulty praying. Difficulty carrying on. So he sent Timothy. Timothy, find out about the believers there and come back to me and tell me how they are doing. So verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and he has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this brothers in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. He's saying, until now I wasn't living. I was barely hanging on. My heart was so burdened, so pressured by concern for you. It wasn't life. But now that I've heard you are doing well, now we live since, not if, since you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. One more lengthy text. Acts chapter 20, 17 through 38. He was going to Jerusalem as we said earlier, going to the heart of Judaism, this false religion set apart from the murdered Christ. He wants to proclaim the gospel there and he knows this is his final departure. These elders whom he loved, you will never see again. So he pours out his heart. These are the last words to them. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me, and in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the good new, the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you on this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, even the difficult things, 
Even the hard truths I gave to you because of my love for you, I did not shrink from this task. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which you obtained with His own blood. Will you men take care of God's church? For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. I was not a burden on anyone. I wasn't dependent upon you. I provided myself, for myself, my own hands, so that you would hear the gospel without without hindrance, without any sense of uh, reciprocity on my part. I'm just paying back because you're paying me when I'm being a burden to you. In all these things I showed you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak, remembering the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. He loved the church. They loved him back. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Apostle Paul loved the church. He modeled that love. He wrote about that love. And it comes to us. That's a characteristic of virtue that all of us should pursue after sacrificial it's enduring love for Christ's body and the final mark and the one that stands out to me the most I said this before the greatest difference between Paul and I Paul and me is not the biblical knowledge although there's a very substantial difference there difference great difference between him, his discipline and mine and his love for the church and mine, but this area is most unreachable for me in Paul's life. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, if you have a pen with you, you know, uh, amuse me and do this. You know, write down an answer. If you want to write it real kind of small, you'll understand why when I ask the question. Right. I'm going to take a, stop for a moment and answer this simple question. Who is the worst sinner you know personally? Right, so what do you know personally? Right. Not that guy who threw the dry cleaners for $54 million for you know, losing his pants. Right. We don't, if, or if you know him personally, you can write his name down. But right, Someone you know personally, um, you don't want to write it too big if it's a member of your family and they're in close proximity. So take a moment and write that person's name down. 
So is it a, maybe a friend who you know is immoral? Maybe you know a coworker who's cheating on his wife. Right? Maybe you know, you know a relative who's uh, abusing his kid or children or abusive to his wife or abusive to her children. Maybe you know a, a neighbor who's cheating on his taxes or a neighbor who's doing drugs or getting drunk night after night. Right. Uh, if we ask Apostle Paul, what would he say? We know the answer. The Apostle Paul's answer would be himself. He would say, I am the greatest sinner. I know. People view me and they see my words and my accomplishments and my merit badges as a Christian, as a pastor, as an apostle. But no man sees my heart except God and me. No man knows what is on the inside. And I'm the greatest sinner I know. That's all for all of us. The greatest sinner that I know is myself. The greatest sinner that you know personally is yourself. I think it was like 20 years ago, there was this popular song by this artist called... uh, Cindy Lauper, right? True Colors. How many of you remember that song when it first aired, came on the radio? Come on now. Oh, come on. Okay, man. How many of you sang along to that song? <laughs> hey, come on. <laughs> right? So, I'm going to read the lyrics here, okay? You with the sad eyes. Don't be discouraged. Oh, this is the only song, by the way, in her album that she didn't write, so... Don't be discouraged. Oh, I, re- I don't have the album, okay? Well, <laughs> don't be discouraged. Oh, I realize it's hard to take courage. In a world full of people, you can lose sight of it all. And the darkness inside you can make you feel so small. But I see your true colors shining through. I see your true colors, and that's why I love you. So don't be afraid to let them show your true colors. Your true colors are beautiful, like a rainbow. Right? It's so. a good song, right? You sing it at a wedding or something. But we know that's wrong. Right? We know our true colors are anything but beautiful. Right? And if we let our true colors come shining through, people won't love us. They'll hate us. They'll be disgusted with us. They'll be embarrassed for us. They would throw stones at us. They would lock us up in a prison if we allowed our true colors to come shining through. Because we know what is in our hearts. We know the sin that rages within us and how it comes out. And most of the time, we don't act upon our sins not for God-centered reasons, but for self-preservation reasons, because we want to be liked, we want to be accepted, we want to be loved, because we fear man. Apostle Paul had no qualms about telling everyone about his sinfulness. We'll study this next week, but one description of himself that he he repeated often, three times in the epistles, was persecutor of the church, persecutor of the church, I was a persecutor. 
he had no qualms about letting his true colors come shining through and telling everyone who has ears to hear that he was a sinner, that he's the chief of all sinners, so that all glory for his life, all things worthy of imitation, all things virtuous, all things holy, the glory would go to God. And we see his humility and how God exalted him because of his humility and he grew more humble through his life. Early in his ministry, 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Among the twelve, I'm the last one. I'm the least of them all. Thirteen, I'm the last one. The middle part, Ephesians 3.8, he said, I'm the least of all God's people. For the end of his life, you know this. 1 Timothy 1.12-15 1 Timothy 1.12-15 Paul in his own words said, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Of I am the chief of all sinners. So the greatest sinner needed the greatest Savior and he found him in Christ. Christ is the greatest Savior who saved, in his own estimation, the greatest sinner. And that should be our mindset as well. The greatest sinner I know, personally, is me. The greatest sinner Paul knew was himself. And therefore, he was so thankful to God for his salvation. That is why he was not interested in his own uh, Welfare, he was not concerned for himself. He didn't have a personal agenda. Self-promotion was not important for him. He lived for God's glory, God's glory alone. Whether he ate or drank, everything was done solely for the glory of God. So these four marks stand out to us. Paul's godly characteristics that we are to follow after. Next week, we're going to look at 11 descriptions of the Apostle Paul. It's going to be a real uh, precious study. 11 self-descriptions. Paul, in his own words, can be a fruitful study. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we know we can't hide from you. There is not a place we can go where we are out of your reach, we are out of your sight. There is no place or recess in our heart that is beyond your omniscience, your knowledge. You know our true colors. They are glaringly clear before your sight. With your holy eyes, you peer and you see clearly who we are. And Lord, we, that is what 
brought us to the cross and keeps us at the cross. That's what causes us to lift high the cross. That even though you know us intimately, completely, you love us and you demonstrated that love by sending your only son to die on the cross for our sins. All our transgressions. And Lord, now you've um, cleansed us, atoned for our sins. Our sins were red as crimson. You have made us white as snow. So now our true colors are the colors of Christ. The imputed righteousness of Christ. We are in Christ. He is in us. And therefore, all that is good is because of Christ. So like Apostle Paul, we just give you praise. We give you thanks. We give you hearty glory and honor to you. And we ask, oh God, that this desire would translate to life. Lord, help us to carry this water home. Not to have um, this mindset just when we're at church together on Sundays. But, oh God, would you help us to live out these truths and that they would affect us as we make decisions, as we relate to others, as we live in this world, that these virtues of Paul would not just be known in our minds, but would be acted upon in daily life. Give you thanks for um, the Apostle Paul, how you have used him and continue to use him. In Jesus' name we pray.